I'm Kate Northrup. And I'm Mike Watts. And we're partners in life, love, and business. Welcome to the Kate and Mike Show, where we share insights and interviews on entrepreneurship, relationships, parenting, self-actualization, and making a life, not just a living. Welcome back to the Kate and Mike Show. This is Mike. And this is Kate. We have a pretty incredible interview with for you today, with you. Well, not with you, for we you. We have, well, with. you're going to listen to it. <laughs> with. what? What is the technical? Yeah. Dr. Kelly Brogan, who is the author of the new book, Own Yourself. Her first book, A Mind of Your Own, was a New York Times bestseller. She's a holistic women's health psychiatrist, and she's the co-editor of the landmark textbook, Integrative Therapies for Depression, in addition to those other books I mentioned. She completed her psychiatric training and fellowship at NYU Medical Center after graduating from Cornell University Medical College and has a BS from MIT in systems neuroscience. She's a board certified in psychiatry, psychosomatic medicine, and integrative holistic medicine, and is specialized in a root cause resolution approach to psychiatric syndromes and symptoms. I just want to say... She's smart. Wow. After listening to all that. Kelly is very smart. She spoke today with us about... Before we dive into what we talked about, oh. she's also certified in Kundalini Yoga. And she's a mom of two. Mom of two. And her book, Own the Self... The Own Self, Yourself. Own Yourself is The Surprising Path Beyond Depression, Anxiety, and Fatigue to Reclaiming Your Authenticity, Vitality, and Freedom. Look at that. So Kelly gets really underneath like the questions in a way that I don't know that I've ever experienced before. So basically what I mean by that is, you know, you asked her about the, some of the dangers of psychiatric medicine. And she spoke to two things in particular that you as a listener are going to be very, very interested in having to do with withdrawal syndromes and also strong correlations to violence. So listen in for those. It's not, uh, those two things are not particularly uplifting, but I also want to say that by the end of the episode, listen all the way through, because at the end we get to a hell of a lot of hope. And so if you're listening and you're like, wow, this is really intense. I just want you to know, keep listening um, because we get to solutions and we get to hope. But basically, like you asked about these dangers and then she goes underneath it into this grander concept of what's going on with society right now and the evolution of us as a species moving from black and white, bad and good thinking to a more like a polarity that can integrate more than one thing at the same time. And I think that's really profound. She's basically, you know, talking about where we are in our evolution as a society and what's important about that and what it has to do with our medical system and owning ourselves. And there was one part in particular where she talked about her 30 day healing protocol which is incredibly simple, actually. You can read all about it, like the full details in her book, Own Yourself, but she basically explains what it is in the episode. But she talks about how it triggers and turns on a self-healing mechanism within your body where it turns your body towards signals 
of safety that then allow regeneration to happen in a way that cannot happen when we are in a constant state of fight or flight. And there was something in my body that resonated so deeply with what she shared just due to my own journey and just anyway with like the medical community. And if you are somebody who wants to reclaim your health, if you've struggled with depression, anxiety, fatigue, if you've been on meds or are on meds or, you know, have a close friend or family member who's on meds, you have to listen to this. I mean, you're listening already. So I think you were going to listen already. (laughs) Yeah. And as Kate said, like this is, I mean, myself last year going through a very significant transformation that I experienced and had a massive, like I look at the pictures. I just posted one the other day on Instagram story about what my skin looked like in November of last year in October. It was out of control. Like in the moment I would look at myself and be like, well, this is crazy. And to read about that, what I was prescribed to help my rashes that were taking place, which I, when I look back at that, I knew I shouldn't have taken them. You know, inside of myself, it was not a good idea, but I did it in that time because I was I wanted to be healed. And I thought this was the way to be able to do this. It's to think about what I like going through that experience to just in how I was able to actually cure and still on that process of curing myself and healing that through another way. So it really did. The definition own yourself. The book is exactly what I went through. I liked this It is a lot of Kelly said she likes to be confrontational a little bit or likes to she dives into those categories for her research and what she's actually doing. And a lot of her basis for what she puts out into the world has a lot of scientific proof behind it. It's all evidence based. It's all evidence based. These aren't just theories that she made up. There is proof behind it. And we do live in a culture where you walk everywhere you go. You could walk into the drugstore. It says, take these drugs. And you walk into, you go to the doctor. It's like, take these drugs. There's in any of my doctors that I went to when I was sick, there was never about like my lifestyle changes, my food changes, like nothing in those conversations about like what we call alternative health or alternative therapies. So it was great to have someone that is we've had Kate's mom on here that has talked about this before. And Kate's mom has built a really massive career. Like her whole life has been kind of against butting up the system. And Kelly went through a very transformational experience herself to turn into like not turn in, but is to start butting up against the system. And this was nine years ago or so when she put down her prescription pad, I think it was nine or 10 years ago. She said it was almost 10 years ago that she wrote her last prescription as a psychiatrist. So regardless of what's going on in your life or what you currently, this, this can be triggering for people. And she explains in this how to, if there's things that are triggering, what to, what to do about it. So just stay tuned for that. It is a conversation that we need to be having because there is a, there, this is not a Mike's not just making this stuff up. This is legit. There is a massive problem that's happening across the United States that we're experiencing with the medical industry. Yeah. With big pharma and what, and what that looks like. And And she shared with us, which I didn't know, you know, I just love how nitty gritty detailed she gets. She shared with us about the difference between industry funded studies and other studies and how that all works out. And that we are one of only three countries in the world that allows drug companies to speak directly to consumers Mm -hmm. and like sell to us. I found that 
horrifying. It is. When you look at the, I, we learned this a lot through USANA and studying doctors and reading book. Ray Strand wrote a book about, what was the name of his book? about? What FDA. your doctor doesn't know about nutritional medicine might be killing you. Yes. And he did a lot of the research about FDA and all that stuff and how money funds a lot of these things. But like we are the United and then Food Babe was on here talking about food in the United States, right? Uh, Vani Hari. Big food. Yeah. Big food. So we are guinea pigs for food in the United States and for pharma drugs. It, it, what happens here does not happen anywhere else in the world. And it's really dangerous for what's taking place. So, however, uh, mm -hmm. the good news There's is hope. we all have a body. It's all our own. And Kelly's going to teach you how to own yourself so you don't have to have anybody yeah. else be the one in charge because you're in charge and she's going to remind you of the tools. Enjoy the episode. Hi, Kelly. Thank you for being here. I'm so excited to be here with both of you. Oh, my goodness. So you do really important work, but intense work that puts you like in many ways, almost everything you're saying is counter culture to what the media wants us to believe, what the medical community wants us to believe that basically like, you know, we need prescriptions to function as humans, <laughs> right? And it's, and our health is somebody else's job. So I guess what I want to ask you first, just to dive right in. <laughs> Let's do this. Like, why do you think, you know, what, what do you think it is about your dharma or your kind of purpose that has you shaking things up? Like, has this always been the case for you? Do you think that's your mission? Talk, just talk about your relationship to controversy and shaking things up. So I, like so many, have you know, the, this program that I'm only as valuable as what I can see I've accomplished and done. Right. So that's what leads anybody to, uh, you know, medical school or law school or kind of following in those well laid tracks. But I have also had this program that says, if I am not unique, then I won't be noticed. Right. Like I'll, I'll be invisible. And so I remember even as a child, like having this sense that I needed to do it differently. Otherwise I would be ordinary and ordinary was like some kind of death by a thousand paper cuts or something. And so it was a combination of those factors that I think led me to have a lot of issues with authority, like all through my medical training, I was constantly in the director's office, like constantly in conflict. And then when I had this sort of moment of invitation to my Dharma, it was it dovetailed very well with those programs and they served me for many years of my activism. And now is the time that I am working to, let's say, level them up or resolve them or heal them. But I think that an aspect of my, my Dharma is, is the, the, the resolution of polarity consciousness, even within myself. Right. So I was both the prescriber, right? So the one who believed in only the pill-based cure to the extent that I specialized in prescribing to pregnant and breastfeeding women. I was one of the first 300 in the world, what are called reproductive psychiatrists. And that's how much I thought this was a, a viable, legitimate, and health-oriented option for human beings, right? So I have some you know, karma to work out around that. And I, and I do, and I am still, you know, trying to understand how that's still in me, right? Because even though I've swung to this other side, 
to inhabit the opposite pole, in the end, you know, there's truth all along the spectrum. And so how can we support one another in navigating to that very, very individualized truth, that very, very personal place of self-actualization? Mm. Okay, there was a lot in there. Yeah, wow. What was the name you said? The director? Or was that right? In my, oh, in, my, in my training, yeah. Uh, good thing. Like, what Not kind popular. of conflict was happening? Like what, were, what was going on? I have a lot of issues with authority, <laughs> which is probably not surprising to anyone who knows me even a little bit. And part of it, you know, is very healthy, right? Because I have this, no, I'll figure it out for myself kind of reflexive inclination. And that's honestly, you know, when I was pregnant, I was a fellow specializing in prescribing to pregnant women. And I came to natural birth and in investigating things like vaccines and, and all, all of these different stones, I eventually began to turn over, not because I was like some bohemian earth mama, right? But because I literally was like, this OB, I know as much as she does, if not more. I don't know when the last time she was on PubMed and I'm going to investigate this for myself. And so I literally started researching episiotomy and fetal monitoring and ultrasound and, and the hep B vaccine. And, and that's when I started to really feel confirmed that, well, thank goddess, I'm looking at this for myself, you know, because I can't trust authority to guide me. So it's kind of like a petulant adolescent, like, don't tell me what to do. Don't hold me down. Don't box me in kind of conflict. But then there's also the side of me that wants to be recognized for my achievements, you know, and to feel worthy and smart and all those things. So it was always this tension, but yeah, I was constantly in trouble for mouthing off or, you know, not following directions. And it, yeah, it was so <laughs> probably part of how and why I developed Hashimoto's thyroiditis, oh. you know, after my training. Okay. So I want to know, I heard you speak about birth at my mom's book launch of goddesses never age. I yes. think it was the one yeah, where you spoke together, which was such a beautiful conversation. And you spoke about being pregnant and wanting to find the absolute best evidence-based way to give birth. Mm -hmm. So can you share about that experience and what you did, in fact, find out? Yeah. So, so I was a feminist and I think from very, very early in my life or, you know, sort of identified as a feminist, but an egalitarian, what I like to call an egalitarian feminist, right? So somebody who said, you know, I can do what you can do bleeding kind of a gal. And so I, of course, you know, I took birth control for 12 years straight because I knew that the bleed with birth control was artificial. And I thought, well, why do I want to bother with having to wear tampons? I'm just going to take literally for 12 years. And, you know, when the HPV vaccine, go ahead. Sorry to interrupt, but like, what do you mean by the bleed from birth control is artificial? And so it's a withdrawal bleed. It's called a withdrawal bleed. So it's not that your, you know, ovulatory hormones have triggered the shedding of your lining. It's just that you're withdrawing the synthetic hormones. And so it's called a withdrawal bleed. So it's, it's almost to give women, I don't know if it was deliberately designed this way, but it's almost to give women the impression that they're still women <laughs> biologically, um, when in fact their entire reproductive system has been essentially hijacked by a pharmaceutical product. So you just skipped having any bleeding for 12 years because you knew it was artificial anyway and it didn't make any difference. I, yeah. I mean, I just didn't want to be inconvenienced and I didn't Understood. see that there would be any, you know, I didn't research at that point, obviously, you know, cause this is the thing about 
consensus medicine is, is that doctors practicing what is often referred to as consensus medicine, they have no incentive, no motivation to look at the primary literature themselves. That makes sense, right? They don't have the time and it's not an expectation. So it's not until you begin to bump up against the glass ceiling that you start to think, oh, well, maybe there's more to the story. I'm going to look at the primary literature myself. So, yeah, so I, you know, I, I had that relationship and I know this is so important in your teachings. And honestly, Kate, I'm like learning at 41 about my own cycle. I mean, it's extraordinary that, you know, you, decades can go by with, with literally no relationship to it. So, yeah, I, you know, I was so excited about the HPV vaccine when it came out. I remember I was in medical school and I thought, well, you know, obviously I'm going to have an elective C-section. Like, why would you do anything else? And I remember as I began to specialize in women's health, thinking how absurd it was that women would put themselves in the position of experiencing pain unnecessarily. So, you know, this was the perspective that I had. So I had no investment or attachment to there being, I didn't even know what spiritual meant, you know, and in medicine, the soul is not an acknowledged, recognized, or in any way, you know, sort of valued concept. Literally the word does not arise in, you know, in nine years of my training. Okay. So this idea that there would be some growth opportunity or some even neurobiological reason to engage the natural birth rhythm, like none of that is consistent with a medicalized process. So it wasn't anything I was exposed to. So when I began to do research into the interventions, and, you know, there's a little competition between specialties. So as a psychiatrist, you know, when I was investigating what the obstetricians were doing, 30% of standards are actually evidence-based. So that means that the sort of like what everyone is doing, and I'm sure your mom would agree with this, you know, what everyone is doing is kind of what everyone's doing. And, and that's, the, that's the primary, you know, defense for it or reason for it. I was pretty indignant about that, you know, when I began to research, again, all, whether it was a episiotomy or fetal monitoring ultrasound, I took a deeper dive into actually, unfortunately, after my pregnancies and, and learned more of the story there. But and then, this, you know, elective C-section and the risks, the mortal risks that accompany that is something I never really heard about. Also, because the, the role of the mother's experience is, as you all know, is not considered really relevant like her experience, right? Like her, her life is considered relevant, but her experience is not a variable. And so it's like live baby, dead baby, live mom, dead mom. And those are the, the variables that are accounted for. So, but even on those grounds, I found, you know, that the recommendations that were starting to be explored in the second trimester of this first pregnancy of mine were questionable. And that's when I moved to uh, midwifery care. That's amazing. A couple of questions. Consensus medicine... What does that mean? So that's a phrase from the Nordic Cochrane database, which was once before they ousted uh, the founder of it, Peter Goche, recently, was once considered to be one of the only third-party sources of evaluation of medical research, right? And so what they refer to as consensus medicine is the uh, references the gap between the evidence base, so what scientific literature has to say, and what is being practiced in individual offices. And, you know, there's a study I reference all the time that says that there's a 17-year lag between what surfaces, whether it's risk or limited benefit or efficacy, what surfaces in the medical literature 
to when that is acknowledged or, or taught to your practicing clinician. Like literally almost two decades can go by where you go to your primary care doctor and he's going to offer you outdated interventions. That makes sense. It makes um, so much sense. It's also so horrifying. I mean, think my buddy <laughs> just had his mercury fillings removed that he yeah. got when he was younger. And it's like, think about that. Like how many mercury fillings were put in and then just knowing that it wasn't good, right? It's like how long it took to catch up. Anyway, I'm sure there's a lot of other I mean, but, we could come up with thousands of yeah. examples, I have no doubt. So the second thing is primary literature, you said. What does that, what does that mean? Yeah. So when I was in my training, and this is true, I think, for almost all medical schools, allopathic medical schools in the country, you know, you are exposed to a certain breadth of literature and it is primarily supportive of what's often referred to as the one gene, one ill, one pill model of medicine, right? So the literature that is curated is primarily industry funded and it is a bit of an echo chamber around this notion that we have, you know, we're on hot on the, on the trail of, of identifying all those genes that are causing all those horrible things you're struggling with. And as, as soon as we do, you're going to get your label and your, your ICD nine or 10 code, and then you're going to know exactly what medication to take. And so to learn about literature that tells a different story, it's just not a part of the system. I like saying, you know, it's like, if you go to the butcher, why would you ask about veganism? You're going to get a pretty skewed <laughs> perspective, right? So <laughs> So that was the moment that I experienced when a colleague gave me this book called Anatomy of an Epidemic, and this was in 2010, and I had just been diagnosed with my first medical problem ever, which is an autoimmune condition, and I was nine months postpartum, my first pregnancy, and I read the book because I had already begun to engage lifestyle change, right? So I was seeing a naturopath, which was completely unlike me. And I only did it almost like secretively because I knew, you know, I could have written my own prescription for Synthroid for the rest of my life. And I just wanted out. I wanted to opt out. So it was only in that setting that I read this book and I found out about 16 non-industry funded papers that I had never heard about, very important literature, telling a story about the ways in which psychiatric medications not only can induce, but then perpetuate the very diagnoses, symptoms, and syndromes that they purport to resolve. That was a very shocking you know, perspective. And that they are actually inducing states of disability the world over. Right. So this was written by an investigative journalist named Robert Whitaker, and I had never heard of a single one of these studies. And remember, I was, you know, a bit of a data nut. Like I was reading the papers. I was spending a lot of time on PubMed every day for the past 15 years. Every Saturday, I've spent several hours researching abstracts. So if I didn't read them, you know, we weren't told about them. And so this literature you know, there are so many ways in which the industry, and when I say industry, I mean pharmaceutical companies primarily, that they can play by the rules set by the FDA and still fabricate information, right? So they can, it's called data dredging. You know, they can selectively present certain aspects of a study. They can hide inconvenient studies in a locked file drawer and just not publish them. So from, you know, a profit bearing incentivized 
system, obviously they're going to do what they can to only show you the science that supports their bottom line. Mm-hmm. That makes plain sense, right? And if we can only disabuse ourselves of the notion that they're here to take care of us, then we'll see that it's a business. They're, you know, Their shareholders are tapping their feet and we can be a little more discerning about where we are seeking you know, our truth. But when industry is not funding it, right? So it's either taxpayer dollars or some other kind of creative research project, then often there's a very different story told. So you want to be exposed to the full breadth of this published literature. Hopefully it's peer reviewed and you know it's gone through a little bit of a process of investigation to establish whether it's statistically sound and non-fraudulent, but it's, it's a whole wild west in there. Okay, cool. So for you going from being, you know, a pregnant fellow and planning on getting an elective C-section, because, you know, why would anybody opt to go through birth (laughs) another way to now, how many years ago did you put away your prescription pad? Almost 10. 10? Almost 10. Mm -hmm. Almost 10 years ago. Okay. And in there, you secretly saw a naturopath. So that was really interesting. You said, I secretly saw this naturopath because I could have written my own prescription for Synthroid for the rest of my life, but I wanted out. Mm -hmm. So why did you want out? What was that inkling for you given how entrenched, like how much you believed in medicine? No, it's so interesting. You know, I had a, I had a moment prior to that when I was pregnant And I remember I treated pregnant women. And so I was writing this prescription for Zoloft. And, you know, I sat her down and because I've always been very interested in the concept, you know, I'm libertarian at heart. And I've always been interested in the concept of like, everyone gets to do what the hell they want. Right. And so I, the idea of informed consent has always been of interest to me. Like, how can we really just like lay it all out there and then let people do what they want? So I was talking to her about, you know, the 25,000 cases in the, in the literature of antidepressant exposure antenatally and how really, you know, babies are being born with 10 fingers and 10 toes for the most part, which is true. And, you know, there are, there's this risk and that risk, but for the most part, the risk of your untreated mental illness is more dangerous than the risk of exposure. And so here you go, right? And I'm like ripping the paper off and I'm thinking to myself, I feel this discomfort inside this dissonance where I thought I wouldn't want to take this medication as myself, a pregnant woman. And here I have written hundreds of these prescriptions. So, you know, they say that consciousness shifts within a given person when you have an experience that your existing mindset cannot capacitate, right? So I had that moment, right? And you can either dismiss it or if you're courageous enough, which I wasn't at the time, you pursue it. Right. And you say, well, maybe there's something else for me to create a field of belief that can hold this discomfort. Right. So how can it be that there's this solution and I wouldn't want to engage the solution? Why is that? What does the solution represent that feels at odds with my soul? Right. And so I ignored it because I had no context, no fertile soil for that. And I ignored it until I was diagnosed. And that's when it came up again. I said, well, I don't want to take a damn prescription. I don't care how great they are, right? I don't want to do it. And of course, that was, you know, the beginning of (laughs) the end of my prescribing career. And so it was really actually, though, because not because of that experience, but because of the scientific literature I was exposed to that that told this pretty harrowing story about psych meds that I said, I can't prescribe another one of these ever again. I can't. There's got to be a better way. And of course, as you know, life would have it, I was 
experiencing that better way, watching my thyroid antibodies go from like the high 2000s to normal within the space of a couple of months, taking dairy and gluten out of my diet, right? So I was seeing it in black and white on paper and that was what really armed me with an alternative solution. If I didn't have that, then I'm not sure I would have been able to maintain my commitment to a non-pharmaceutical approach. Mm-hmm. So interesting. So can you share with us a few of the shocking statistics or shocking data about psychotropic medicine that probably our listeners are not aware of? Because, yeah. you know, I think that this is, as you know, it's so complex. It's very close to my own heart as it is for so many of us, close friends, close family members, you know, everyone's on psych meds, <laughs> I mean, right? Like, I mean, really. And, and so I was on psych meds at a time in my life as well until I remember talking to my friend Lucas. I'll never forget this. I was standing in my bedroom my senior year of, high, of college and I was on Klonopin, mm-hmm. maybe? Is, is that, that an anti-anxiety? That's what are anti-anxiety. Some, what are some of the common sites? Zoloft, Paxil. Yeah, so there's the antidepressant category, which is probably the most prevalent, and they have trade names like Prozac, Effexor, Cymbalta, Paxil, Lexapro, Celexa, and then there are anti-anxiety, quote-unquote. So they're all anti, right? So it's all warfare. It's warfare <laughs> against your psyche, your heart, your spirit, whatever. But it's uh, anti-anxiety ones, which are like Clonopin, Xanax, Valium, Many of these are street drugs as well. And then there is the quote-unquote antipsychotic category, which is now often being relabeled the mood stabilizer category or even the augmentation category. So when you're on an antidepressant, it's not really working well. You might be put on something like Lamictal or Abilify. And then there are um, the sleep meds like you know, Ambien. And then the list goes on and on. But you're right. You know, the, it's somewhere around 20% of the population. Oh. Um, but it so much higher. <laughs> it seems so much higher. I couldn't agree more. And you know, part of it is, you know, I love the Krishnamurti quote that says it's no sign of health to be well adapted to a profoundly sick society, right? So we are in a really, really awkward moment in of transition as as human beings on this planet, and many of us are very sensitive to that mismatch, right? We're like neither here nor there but things are, are really off. And I like to say, you know, that it's the canaries in the coal mine who are medicated. It's those, you know, as, as your mom would say, you know, like it's, it's the empaths, it's the highly sensitive people who are feeling, you know, what it is to live a human life on synthetic processed food, what it is to live exposed to all sorts of toxicants, whether it's fluoride in the water or pesticides in our food or 5G networks, you know, uh, being laid out all over our neighborhoods, who are super sensitive to toxic relationship dynamics and who fundamentally feel like the collective grief more sensitively than others right? Who are maybe even picking up other people's, you know, in, in their family, you know, trauma ripples. And, and so these are the people who have a hard time punching the clock nine to five, going through all that, right? Trying to calibrate around all of that, because it's not fundamentally aligned with our biology, let alone our, our psychology and spirituality. And so they are caught in the gears. And I find this to a person, you know, that the, the, the women that I've treated in my practice, they go on to become healers and artists and visionaries and activists. And it's like, when you set the conditions for the, the blossoming of the, the bud, it's irrepressible 
right? But we can't manufacture that blossoming. You can't make a flower bloom. Like you just have to create the conditions for it to do so. And the arrested state of consciousness that these psychiatric meds can hold you in, listen, it can make sense, right? It's, it's like a, it's saying uncle, right? You're like, I just, I can't, I can't. And that's why I'm a huge believer in, you know, the, the Maya Angelou concept of, of when you know better, you do better. So when you ask me, what did you know better about, you know, like what did you learn about that led you to do differently? Let's say maybe it's not better or worse in, in my case, but I would say there are two things that I feel I'm, I'm working out some karma with having written all these prescriptions for all those years that I didn't tell a single patient about and that I think belong in a, an informed consent conversation. And one of those is the habit forming nature of these medications. So I'll never forget, you know, when I was on an inpatient unit in, um, in New York city, working with uh, what's called an attending physician. So like, you know, the ones who are in charge and a patient said, who we were starting on an antidepressant, he goes, well, am I going to get addicted to this? And my attending was like very, very like derisively. He's like, mm. that's like saying, are you going to get addicted to your eyeglasses? Right? Like the implication being, you know, if you, if you need eyeglasses, you wear them and it's stupid not to, and it's not even a relevant consideration. Right. And so what I found when I pivoted and I began to offer people the opportunity to come off these, these medications is that first of all, I was running like basically an outpatient rehab and I began to see that it was not relapse that's what we were taught to say like, Oh, well, of course their anxiety is coming back. And, and obviously that's evidence that they need medication, but I knew, and they knew that that's not what we were seeing. And it wasn't for actually many years, wasn't until about 2014 that it started to appear in published science that these medications when discontinued, even responsibly, even strategically can induce a withdrawal phenomenon. And what hasn't totally been stated, although partially is that this withdrawal phenomenon is worse than any other chemical substance on the planet. So you take crack cocaine, you take heroin, you take alcohol, Oxycontin, please. It's not even in the universe of what it is to come off of these medications after a long period of time. The disability that can be induced is beyond anything I have ever witnessed in my medical career. And you know, patients are talking about this by the thousands, you know, about this experience and there isn't a holding space for it in the medical community. So it's happening in all of these outpatient practices, you know, where they're trying to come off of these meds, their doctors don't know what the hell is going on. Nobody's trained to support the nervous system during this withdrawal phenomenon. And so it appears that it's like about two months out, uh, you know, if you've taken meds for over two months, you can potentially be vulnerable to this kind of withdrawal. Most of the patients that I've treated have been on meds for over 10, 15, 20. The longest case I've had is 30 years. So that's important to know, right? Because you might be interested in opening yourself up to some of the other options if you, if you know what could be awaiting you in terms of that kind of challenge. Now, that's been a very pivotal part of every woman's journey that I've worked with, right? So it's never all bad. It's also a part of their personal initiation. All the stuff they weren't ready to deal with 10 years ago, well, now they're strong enough to go through it, right? And, they, and look at it, and especially if they have, you know, a holding space to do that. And then the other thing is a far less sexy, if possible, conversation, which is around the violence-inducing capacity of these these yeah. meds. And 
I actually just published, actually, I think it's supposedly the first review on what we know about this with two colleagues of mine. And this is pretty decently worked out mechanistically. And what happens is that some people, we think, based on their liver enzymes and variations in those liver enzymes, can enter into a state of intoxication, even after one dose of medication, where to the outside, they could look even better, calmer, right? But on the inside, something you know, very distorted is happening. And that these people go on to experience a neurological phenomenon called akathisia, which is subjectively described as like, you know, your skin crawling and your insides rattling. And like, it's like you, you want to just like, most of the time people describe wanting to rip their head off or their head feels like it's disconnecting from their body. And that these individuals then go on to commit acts of impulsive violence, whether it's suicide or homicide. And, uh, you know, every mass shooting in this country that's ever been reported on has, I, I believe, been a consequence of this phenomenon of psychiatric medications. And it's, it's most relevant when you're starting meds or coming off of them. And it's kind of Russian roulette because at this point, nobody is risk stratifying for who would be vulnerable to this. So like it's, you know, one of the most important studies was from 2011. They looked at a, a bunch of these folks who committed, you know, killed their therapist, killed their child, jumped in front of a subway, but none of them were mentally ill, quote unquote, right? None of them had ever been clinically depressed, you know, let alone homicidal, bipolar, they were prescribed these meds for very run-of-the-mill reasons, off-label. It's called off-label. So like, you know, a little stress at work or a divorce or their dog died, right? So these are not people you could say, oh, well, obviously they were clinically depressed and they killed themselves. So who's pointing? That's like saying umbrellas caused the rain, you know, the meds didn't right. cause that. So, you know, and that is the group that identified that they all had in common this liver enzyme variant. And, you know, it's my belief that this is a, is a public health concern of epic proportions. It's, it's why I don't send my children to public school, literally. Where do your kids, are your kids homeschooled? They're in Waldorf school. Okay. Yeah. We can so. have that conversation <laughs> offline, but we're having like a whole school conversation right now. <laughs> well, for so many reasons. Is there like a benefit? I mean, it's funny because I used to do illegal drugs you know, like back in college and et cetera, for a good 12 years. And I have been terrified of legal drugs for Mike, a long Mike time. Mike won't even take an Advil. Like, like he's just that? like, nope, I'm in extraordinary pain. And I'm like, how about you take it's, an anti-inflammatory? And he's like, nope. <laughs> because I, but I used to oh my God, so like funny. pins and all this stuff back in the day, because I used to sell drugs back in college. Uh, we did a whole episode on this earlier for those of you new tuning in. They're not coming out at the moment. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it was like... Yeah, no, this is not the big come out moment. No. This is... Kate's mom announced this at our wedding. That so was the was big a, come out moment. That was, that was <laughs> epic. But so like I used to see what... Like Adderall always intrigued me because people would be up and jacked and like ready mm -hmm. to go. And so... But I just like... These things always intrigued me, but I was also very terrified of them. So, and so I never really took part in like, especially what a lot of college kids go. There's a documentary right now that I'm kind of halfway through called uh, the pill, I think, or pills or something. Mm. Take your pills. It's on Netflix. It's something. Oh, I've heard about time. it. I haven't seen it. Yeah. And it is about this, the kind of what we're, this conversation is here. But my question is like, 
are there benefits to these things? Cause we've talked a lot of downside that happens with this. Is there a reason for people to be on them or is there just not? Well, so this is a, that's a great question. And I'm sure one that many people are wondering, and it's really about your, it's kind of like, what's your religion, right? So, you know, if you ask a Jew, what are the, the virtues of Judaism? They're going to have an answer. And if you ask a Muslim, what are the virtues, <laughs> you know, it depends on the belief related context that you're operating in. So if you are in a belief system that says we are essentially only having an experience of random forces, right? So we're flesh robots on a dead rock in the middle of nowhere, as Alan Watts would say, and we're here to just kind of survive and do what we can to get an A plus on life, then you're going to experience the malfunctions of your body, AKA symptoms as an interference, an impediment and something to be managed through force. And so through that lens, you would probably take the risk of all of the adverse effects that I might have unearthed, you know, from the, the scientific literature, because there is a, a, even a 23% possibility that your symptom will be suppressed for a period of time. Now, what's interested me, again, because I believed in that, that system, is that the benefits are highly amplified, highly amplified. So there's an incredible amount of overpromising going on in the conventional system. And especially with psychiatric meds, even with the ones like Adderall, like Clonopin, the ones that you're like, yeah, well, I feel high when I take it, or I feel significantly altered when I take it. So I know it's doing something that benefit. You got two months, enjoy it. Right. So you got two months. And then after that, you're chasing the dragon. So the, the ways in which we are understanding the benefits, we have to look at who's telling us the story about the benefits and are they hiding all the inconvenient pieces of data that undermine how effective are these really? What are these benefits, right? But none of that is even meaningful or interesting if you are inhabiting another belief system. And that's what I am interested in cultivating and supporting and hopefully representing, which says... I am here to experience the mystery of this human embodiment. I don't necessarily know what it's about, but I want to contribute to livingness, right? Like I want to be alive and I want to feel more life coming through me, around me, right? And so my body is a really incredible instrument that I have scored, you know, to help me inhabit this experience. And so if my body is expressing a symptom, and you could also say that of the mind, right? But let's stick to the body for a minute. Then I'm going to understand it as being an important representation, even a symbolism of something I otherwise didn't have the sensitivity to perceive psychically, right? So my body is showing me representationally what I need to pay attention to. And only I can figure that out. This is an experience that I am having with myself, about myself. That belief system, there's not room for the concept of benefit, right? And that's not to say you have to be like absolutist or dogmatic the way I can be. Um, but it's just, it's like not that compelling because you are more sensitive to the risk aspect of the equation. 
And you're like, well, yeah, maybe I might feel better for a minute, but then I might also go, you know, shoot my wife, <laughs> you know? And you're like, well, I think I'm going to go on this little journey. I'm going to explore what's here for me. And I'm going to know that I'm strong enough to handle it. Mm -hmm. That's a, a very, very big aspect of the marketing of these pharmaceuticals is what I call coddling the victim, right? So I have often been criticized and so has, has your mom, Kate, for, for shaming individuals who participate in the conventional system, which of course is not my intention. However, you know, this idea that the system seeks to say, oh, it's okay. You didn't do this, right? There's, oh, I'm so sorry. Let me wrap you in this blanket and just walk down to CVS and fill this prescription and take your prescription like a good patient. It can feel validating and it can feel even nurturing because of that power disparity. It might invoke parental archetypes and, and all the rest. But ultimately, it's very challenging to feel like a responsible, powerful adult when you are medicated. Why? Because the implicit subliminal messaging is you are broken. Something yes. is wrong with you. And we all secretly believe that about ourselves anyway. So when we have that daily validation, the prescription bottle with our little name on it, right? Every day we open it up and say, yep, still messed up, still broken. Guess I'm not fixing this one, right? And you, you never get in contact with your own innate capacity to transform and grow and evolve because of adversity. But this concept is also anathema to American consciousness. We don't have any models, you know, I think culturally, I'm sure there are some exceptions, but certainly not the way indigenous folks do, you know, of what initiation is, right? And that's where childbirth comes in, this concept of like, why would I go through that? Well, one reason you might go through that is so you can figure out what you're made of, right? And so you connect. Can become a mother. Yes, and connect. <laughs> Freaking hard. <laughs> Connect to this, right? This next phase of beingness that's asking more of you than you can possibly bring to it from your childlike consciousness, yeah. right? And the childlike consciousness is constantly curating, you know, our best features and, and the most acceptable, lovable parts of ourselves and hiding all the bad stuff. Because the adult consciousness is, is the one that can hold what's called the good and bad object, right? I am both a liar, a cheater you know, a murderer, you know, and I'm also like a generous, loving, you know, thoughtful, beautiful person. I'm all these things. We are all, all these things, right? But the child consciousness is, you know, unfortunately or fortunately programmed to be survivalist. And so how do we graduate from child consciousness to adult consciousness? Well, it's very difficult to do when you are participating in the dependency on a system that fundamentally says you're not good enough, you're broken and something's wrong with you. Mm -hmm. I love listening to you. And <laughs> I want to know, so let's pretend somebody's listening and they or someone very close to them is on psych meds and there's a little rumbling inside and they're like, there is something here for me. And they're scared because yeah. they have been buying into a system that has told them, for example, like, I'd love to hear your take on this concept of 
chemical imbalance versus mm. situational, right? And then there are people who have a belief system and I am not saying you are wrong. I'm just saying oh, no, there's, you know, there's different versions of reality, <laughs> but the one version of reality is I have a chemical imbalance and therefore for the rest of my life, I need to take this drug. And then there's situational, right? Of like, I'm going through a really hard time and I'm going to take this drug for right now, but you've just pointed out this withdrawal situation, which is major. Where does somebody start? Obviously, your book, Own Yourself, would be a phenomenal place to start, as would be a mind of your own. Mm -hmm. um, but let's talk about the one we're talking about today. <laughs> yeah. So, so this is important because, first of all, if anyone is listening and they are feeling attacked, afraid, angry, let's see if we can reframe that sensation as excitement, right? Because if, if you are triggered... And trust me, I've spent much of my adult life being triggered by almost everything everywhere all the time. So I'm very familiar with that feeling, right? Of being like, mm, you know, and if you are, it's also a little opportunity to just kind of, you know, sit with not knowing necessarily yet what to do with this, right? So that's okay. And I will say that it may be interesting to know that the chemical imbalance theory, if that is something that you've adopted and that feels, you know, like true to you, probably because it's latched on like a parasite to the idea that something is wrong with you, right? You're imbalanced for good. You might be interested to know that in six decades of published science, there's literally not a single study that validates that. That was a big shocker for me. Because remember, I'm sitting here writing this prescription saying, well, this is going to help you balance your serotonin deficiency. And, you know, this benzodiazepine is going to help you with your GABA and the Adderall is going to help you with your dopamine. And it was a very reductionist, almost preschool level assignment of each drug to a different neurotransmitter. And so I was really shocked to learn this. And I was not the first whistleblower, right? There were people before me, Joanna Moncrief, Peter Bregan, who basically said, the emperor has no clothes. In fact, that was the name of Irving Kirsch's book. And this idea of the chemical imbalance has been adopted by the industry and then perpetuated by media. That's how you got the idea. That's probably how your doctor got the idea because we are one of three countries in the entire world that allows industry to speak directly to patients about their medical conditions and about their biology, right? So if we are gonna say, well, it's not that, only because there's literally no scientific evidence, then what is it, right? Then what is mental illness? Is it a thing? And I have found that unfortunately or fortunately, it doesn't fit discreetly into a disease-based definition, right? And, and that's pretty much true, you know, spoiler alert for all chronic illness. <laughs> I'll just say that. So then we have to look at what might be some of the environmental drivers and this is where we get into the concept that's, that's described medically as evolutionary mismatch. So why is it that we have, you know, epidemic proportions of these illnesses that didn't exist 150 years ago? What is going on? The genomic explanation for those is insufficient. So we have to look to these triggers and stressors. And, you know, many people who criticize my work say, well, yeah, that's, that's fine and, and nice for the, you know, the walking wounded, right? Or like the worried well, all these like alliterative labels. And it's nice if you want to just like change your diet if you're just like feeling a little malaise. And, and so of course, remember what I told you about my personality, that lionized me to be like, oh really? 
I'm going to publish history making cases of the sickest people on this planet and show you how lifestyle was the only intervention that worked when pharmaceuticals and electroconvulsive therapy and multiple locked inpatient units of hospitalization didn't work. This did. And not only that, it cleaned up the mess that was created by the system. So the interventions that I am a, a proponent of are pretty basic, but they are done in a, a climate, I guess, of uh, a microclimate of self-discipline, right? That is beyond the level of ordinary life, right? So it's uncomfortable. And it's, you know, the, the recommendations that I make are about like two and a half hours a day of self-care, which is not compatible with just like, you know, your drive-through meal and grabbing a special K bar on your way out the door. And fundamentally, they are orienting you towards yourself in a kind of ritualized way that allows your nervous system to get the message that you are in control. Because as interesting as these concepts are spiritually, they have neurobiological correlates. When you feel helpless, there is a certain cascade of messengers that are unleashed in your body that are incompatible with regeneration, right? Fight or flight has a certain signature and we can live in that state for literally decades. And then when you shift into a place of perceived self-control, that is a different neurobiological state that is compatible with regeneration. And that I think is the underpinning of the spontaneous healings that I have seen where people have literally walked away from, you know, decades of uh, recidivistic schizophrenia or suicidal depression or bipolar disorder or OCD. Now they don't always do it in one month, but that month, it, sometimes it's like two months though, that one month, portal is the beginning of a practice of sending yourself these signals of safety from many different sides. Mm. So I'm a big believer in like an order of operations, right? Because I do understand that sometimes we are in a place that is incompatible with our, our sociocultural, the expectations of us for productivity because of a spiritual emergence, right? So this, this can look, you know, like psychosis, right? It can look like mania, it can look like extreme depression where your soul is literally saying, I am not participating in this life sucking version of reality. Okay. And so there is a, a place for spiritual guidance, let's say, but like that may also may not be necessary for you. Like you may just have a B12 deficiency or you may just like need to, you know, tweak your diet a little bit. So you let's you may have a what? A B12 deficiency. Like oh, a B12, like a vitamin deficiency. Yeah, right? so yeah. Like, Sorry. I heard beach ball deficiency and I was like, wait, what? <laughs> that's also a thing. You know what? Since moving to Miami, I realized that's also a thing. That's funny. Yeah. But like it can be super basic and maybe yeah. you don't have to go on some like hero's journey if you just make a small change to your lifestyle. So that's why, you know, it's like, let's pick the low hanging fruit. Let's see if we can send this signal of safety to your physiology, eliminate the white noise of headaches and bloating and, you know, insomnia and see like, do you really have panic attacks at the end of a month? Like, do you really feel like you can't string two words together? And at the end of that month, then you have liberated a lot of energy that was going to maintain a lot of addictive patterns typically because in this month we eliminate, you know, all the good stuff, coffee, alcohol, wheat, dairy, spreads of sugar. And then we're also doing engaging and recognizing, almost reconnecting to the state of the planet by engaging detox, 
in my case, the notorious coffee enema that I learned from my mentor, Nick Gonzalez, and then a contemplative practice, but it's three minutes a day. So you can start that small. You could probably even start smaller, although I've never tested that, of, of just a pause, right? So that pause consistently administered without a single missed day in 30 days is sufficient, amazingly, because our bodies are that forgiving to begin to re-signal, right? Because you wouldn't make that pause if you were running from a lion, not even for one right. day, let alone three. So it, apparently that's all, and this is a kind of a Kundalini metric, you know, that the three minutes are a really good place to start. So after that month, you just have all of this clarity in your interpersonal world to look at the tension spots, whether it's your job or your, you know, your relationship or your family dynamics to begin to identify the places where you're just not in line, kind of the little lies you've been telling yourself. And then from there, you know, the deeper healing of, of intergenerational trauma and exploration of elevation of consciousness and really coming into the most powerful expression of who you're here to be. It can start with that very simple exercise, but I believe in first things first, because otherwise you're going to be dancing around with 20 different practitioners and taking 700 million supplements and you're going to lose faith, yeah. right? So, so this exercise in, in turning towards yourself, doing it yourself, because the outcomes that I've had, interestingly, when in my online program, Vital Mind Reset, where I'm not involved interpersonally with, with those participants, I don't even screen them, nothing, versus my private practice have been so dramatically powerful relative to my private practice outcomes that I've, I've come to understand that the less doctor and the more you, the better. And that could even be for reasons related to what we perceive, you know, biologically is going on, that we are in power. We are in control. It's very hard to be sick when you feel that way. I'm just taking so many notes. <laughs> can we, I got some, like, we're, I know we were getting close to the hour, but can I ask some rap, maybe rapid fire I, we have curious. to ask Kelly. What okay. I'm, I'm cool. I love talking to you too. Okay. Yeah. All right. So in the state of Maine right now, and this kind of like, I, it's like the big push now is the mandatory vaccines for children. We're going there. Are going we? Is, <laughs> okay. Like I'm curious. I want to know because like, we've talked a lot about things that like adults or kids are given. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the most disturbing things I've heard in the last week is I was at the someplace, I think it was by myself. And there was two moms talking about like kids and the energy of what's happening and saying that we're probably going to be diagnosed HDH, HDH, what is it? ADHD. And it's just a matter of time because my kid's just out of control. Right. And it's a boy. Right. So, and I can see it naturally via watching these four-year-olds of how like both of them have energy, but there's a definite energy that's different with the boys than there is with girls. And I feel like it's been, and Kelly Starrett did a lot of work that when we start sticking kids in chairs around kindergarten and first grade, the boys really start to act crazy, you yeah. know, in a much different way. Yeah. And I don't mean that. Like, if 13% of children today are, are diagnosed with ADHD, which literally doesn't have a single biological correlate. Like it's, it's not a medical entity. And we have 13% of our, our children on amphetamines, quite, quite a, quite a state. Yeah, no, I'm happy to answer any, any question on this, on this. So subject. like so, yeah. with the man, because now New York passed this, Maine's passing this, Florida's getting ready to push this through. Like what is the danger of having, so two, two questions, are there vaccines that are necessary? Cause I'm reading this book that talks about as we level up in society, 
that as you're leveling up, you experience vaccines in your culture to eliminate certain diseases. And then number one, that's the thing. And we'll talk specifically here in the United States. And then number two is like, what are the dangers of having these mandatory practices across that are being enforced? Mm -mm. So I could speak about the science of this for like hours and have, and I'm happy to share with you. I have like a free, I published a paper. Cause again, I do this for sport. Like, I just think it's funny when I can get through yeah. the, <laughs> the yeah, gauntlet. Totally. We and have I all those a, resources. To I published a paper on this. I have like a free lay summary of what I think is the most relevant science. And there, you know, I have resources from colleagues. I mean, I've probably, I've calculated, put like 10,000 hours of research into this um, because of the indignation that arose in me when I began to research the flu vaccine. Remember, when I was pregnant, I had two patients who had second trimester stillbirths, which I think has got to be one of the worst things that can happen you know, to a woman in her lifetime. Two I had. Now, remember, I was prescribing them psych meds, so I was very interested in what might have happened, right? Both of these patients were given the flu. This was in the H1N1 double flu shot season at a drugstore, Okay. And so I said, well, hold on a minute. Let me, let me take a look at this. And I didn't get beyond the package insert to see that there was no teratologic research, no carcinogenic research. Literally relative to the antidepressants I was prescribing, there was not a study. So I said, hold on a minute. What's going on? And remember, I was pregnant. So I had to make a decision about the hep B vaccine pretty soon. And up until that point, I, I thought, well, why would you not? Right. So the science, though, I find is it's part of the warfare, right? Like, I'm not sure anyone has ever been convinced because of the science. The science supports an intuitive knowing that you already have that there is a better way to interact with your child or let's say, you know, your young adult's health. And you recognize that whether it's soil or old growth forests, we do not know how to engineer complex systems. Right. <laughs> So we can only get out of the way and allow those complex systems to flourish. So the, the confirmation of that intuition is available. There is a you know, quarter of a million published studies that bring the safety and efficacy claims into a grave question, right? And if you're interested in that, it's there. But I think, you know, you're asking a question that I can maybe address on something of a more ontologic layer, because I think that part of the reason why the Healthy People 2020 agenda was to achieve, and this is published online, you can go find it, was to achieve 100% vaccination is so that you could no longer understand uh, the contrast, right? Because it's becoming increasingly normative for women, and I treated women in Manhattan for many years with children, to think of it as normative to spend you know, many days of the month in the ER to go to their pediatrician, like, and have them on speed dial regularly, you know, constantly dealing with sick kids and their meds and chasing problems with antibiotics and inhalers. And that women are incredibly adaptable. I don't have to tell you, uh, you know, and, and they can accommodate and stretch and grow to bear the burden of anything. Right. And so these increasingly complex childhood experiences, you know, women habituate pretty easily to them. And maybe I shouldn't just say women. But so what if we create a situation where you don't see little Robbie who's never been vaccinated and then little Freddie who's had, you know, all of his shots, you know, 72 by age 16. And you can't perceive and feel 
the contrast between those two individuals, right? With 100% vaccine compliance, then, okay. But so why, right? Like, why would this be happening? Why are they rolling this out? Well, I think that we are in the death throes of polarity consciousness, right? And we are in the death throes of this level of consciousness that sees dualism, that sees good and bad. So what is a greater expression of that? than that there are invisible germs, invisible entities. It's almost like demonic, right? Invisible entities out there that could get you at any time and kill you, right? It's like a, a mythopoetic story, like a fairy tale that we're all being asked whether we want to inhabit. So the bad out there that's going to harm the good me is a part of the story that's dying, because we are being invited to consider whether there's bad and good in everything. And that is not compatible with the infectious disease model that is driving the fear around communicable illness and the attachment to vaccination. So that's why there's controversy. That's why some people have bridged that consciousness, right? And they, they don't want to fight right? And manufacture through this armamentarium, this protective mechanism against the microbes, right? Or maybe they even just know about epigenetics and the microbiome and biochemical individuality. And maybe they're just up on the science and they're like, well, that doesn't make any sense. A 200 year old intervention that hasn't been updated because these companies are indemnified and have no financial incentive to do any further research and development, let alone safety studies, right? Maybe they just have done that, but I think it's, it's a little deeper spiritually than that. And I think the reason there's controversy is because some of us are saying, I don't want to live in that world anymore. That warfare based control based force based world. And I don't want my children to have to experience that. And so the greatest expression of a force based culture is the experience of abdication of bodily sovereignty. So if a government, that runs my country can penetrate my body and the body of my child without my consent, then we have established the, I think the greatest and most powerful expression of control. There's nothing quite like that. And once that is available to a government, all manner of things can come from that. Right. Handmaid's tale, anyone? Right. So I think that is not, consciously, you know, not deliberately, but I think that is an unconscious driver of the mandates, right? We have control over your body and your child's body. We can penetrate it against your will. And if we allow for this, then we will continue to see the fullest expression of this level of, of consciousness. But perhaps we're ready you know, to move into the new story. I don't know. I really don't know. This is where I do most of my spiritual work is coming to a place where I'm okay with what's happening and where I really understand that it's perfect, you know, as it is. So I want to bring us home there because you posted something the other day regarding the censorship that's happening with the algorithms with Google and how they're censoring natural, I don't, how would you say it? Like alternative, health. alternative health yeah. information, yeah. right? And you said something so beautifully, real health or anything that, <laughs> so just, can you just tell our listeners just in like a sentence or two what's happening? Cause I don't think people know. So I'll tell you what I told my daughter. 
Great. Um, <laughs> she's 10. And we have a, we communicate a lot about worldly happenings, right? And so I said, you'll never believe what happened. Mama's website is now totally disappeared from Google, right? So you can find me if you put in Kelly Brogan, MD, gut or psychiatry or birth control. But if you put in the things that I have something to share about and not my name, which is how people normally ask questions, then you can't find me. Isn't that interesting? And I said, it's kind of like if you went to the library and you thought it was a normal library, but the only books on the shelf were the librarian's favorite books. And so you went to this library and you were like, I can't wait to do my research. And you ended up taking home like six books that were the librarian's favorite, right? And you thought it was something different, right? So this is the nature of the curation that's going on at Google. And by the way, in other arenas, but you know, that we think that we are interacting with a neutral party. We love the idea of the neutral party, right? It's like the God's eye just gazing down dispassionately on us with loving care. And that, that's what I think we all have been led to believe Google is. And in fact, now whistleblower later, or two actually, we've come to understand that they, the administrative folks at Google, feel they have the best, they've taken the best pulse on what is good and what is bad, it's the same story, right? And so the bucket that I find myself in and many of my colleagues, including you know my partner Sayer, is really weird. It's with like pedophiles and right-wingers. <laughs> it's like kind of like a really interesting mixed bag, even like a colleague of mine, Kim Anami, you know, she's yeah. like, yeah. So like, it's, she doesn't talk about, you know, vaccines or whatever. She's, she's talking about like sex, great sex and strengthening <laughs> your vagina. Like exactly. it's not so dangerous. It's, it's like a funny company, you know, that we find ourselves in. And I want to believe that the intentions were, to curate a better, a better world, you know, like that they really think that it's dangerous, you know, for people to be exposed to this. And, and that the trouble is that that's how you treat children. That's not how you treat sovereign adults who you trust to make their best informed decision. And this is where censorship obviously can be an extremely slippery slope because you may not be in my bucket right now, but you might be in the future and a topic that you have strong feelings about access to could very easily find itself there. So, you know, what's interesting is that in the, it had to come to always, oh, right. It's, it is perfect. It had to come to this place for, you know, a bunch of my colleagues to begin to come together and say, okay, we need a new platform. And there's like really smart, powerful people in this realm. And they're going to figure, I'm not going to figure it out, but they're going to figure it out. And I'm going to jump on board. And it had to get to that place because otherwise the complacency of participation in, you know, the Google universe would have been too overwhelming. Absolutely. And you posted this, like you went from like, just for statistics for people. Yeah. It was like 250,000 visits a month. To your website? Yeah. Yeah. To nothing. To zero. Yeah. And, and yeah, in organic traffic. Basically overnight, pretty much. You know, it's sadder for my CTO because, you know, there's just so many years of effort and, you know, we've, it's been organic SEO based traffic and a lot, a lot of attention and time. And this is, you know, 
I think he, I, I should probably care more or something because he's upset. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, it was organic traffic and now it's to zero. But you know what? It's already like people already know. I mean, what's creepiest about this, honestly, and confu- most confusing is the auto-completed suggestions, right? So like if you put in anti-vaxxers are, you're in, in Bing or Google or some others, you're going to have auto-populated a suggestion that includes killers, killers. So are people searching for that, right? Not only is it not an inquiry, but are people really searching for that? Well, what's interesting is that you can go to Google's own product, Google Trends, and compare yourself, the, the fact that that has zero search traffic, literally, nobody is searching for that, with the fact that it's now suggested based on what we think is an algorithm of popularity, right? So like, why don't they just hide? I'm always confused by this. Like, why don't they just hide that? And I think it's because we are in an era of integrity and we are in an era of transparency and the lid is off and I love it. You know, that the, the truth is, the truth is gonna come out. And it's like, even if it's provided, like even if on the package insert of a pharmaceutical product, they tell you all the spooky stuff that can happen, it's gonna come out. You just have to want to know. You have to want to take the blinders off. You have to want to adult enough to source your own information and to see what they're showing you. It's out, the whistleblowers are out, the information is out. Now it's up to you. Do you want to patronize a company that is going to curate reality for you? Or do you want to do your best to participate in your own curation? So that's one way to kind of neutralize because otherwise we can get in this place where we are in victimhood and the bad guys at the bad corporations are messing with us again. And we just got to move past that story if we want to feel free. Yes. And I want to feel free. So I just really appreciate it. Because as a mother of young children and like whatever, I can get into a thing of the spinning of fear and anger and whatever, right? About all the things about abortion, about the pol. I can go, I can go there. Like we all can. And so I really appreciate your perspective. I love reading your work especially, you know, just what you're posting on social media, because it brings me back to the truth of myself also, which is that place of trust and freedom. And to know that like the lid is off and this is the, you know, like this is part of the healing. So thank you for being that beacon. And I mean, thank you. You're an incredible ambassador of this kind of personal responsibility and making it accessible, you know? So I think that you know, it's conversations like these that contribute to, as Rupert Sheldrake would say, the morphic field of possibility, you know, where, where this is not only possible, but it's more beautiful and more exciting and more joyful. Mm. Well, thank you so much. So I feel like I need to go back and listen to this episode again. I've gotten so much out of listening to you. Thank you. And so where should people, obviously they can get your book, Own Yourself, anywhere books are sold. Is there a specific place you'd like them to get it? You know, obviously, or maybe not so obviously, but I think many of us in this arena are having some conflicts with Amazon as, as you know, part of the oligarchy. So yeah, mom and pop bookstores would be, would be a wonderful place to patronize. Wonderful. And they should find you where on the internet? Just, uh, I'm over at kellybroganmd.com. Okay, great. 
Awesome. awesome. Well, thank, thank you, you both. so much. This was thank really you. highly educational. Thank you. One word for it. <laughs> and deeply inspiring. <laughs> Are you thinking about making a big investment in your business in a mastermind or a high-level coaching program or some other big ticket item, but you feel unsure about whether or not it's going to be worth it, how to make the decision about if it's the right thing for you, and how to even plan for that investment. Well, Mike and I have seen a lot of new high-ticket offers in the online business and personal development space, and we're excited about that. And we also want you to have the tools to make the best decision for you so that this is an investment and not a waste of money. So we're offering a free masterclass There's really not any pitch. It's just a public service about how to decide on and plan for making a big investment in your business. You can get it totally for free over at katenorthrup.com forward slash up level. And we're so excited to share with you three signs that you're ready to invest in a high level coaching or support for your business, a simple fail-proof three-step process for making the right decision about these investments every time, and the critical shift you need to make in your business finances to make the funds available to invest when the time is right. So if you are looking to make a big investment in your business and you want to do it right, join us for the free masterclass, katenorthrop.com forward slash up level. See you there.